and welcome to the Winnipeg Music Project on 101.5 UMFM. This is Ashley Vianyesh. Today I am here with... Gregory Lewis. Hi, Gregory. Uh, how are you? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> good. So for people who are listening, uh, tell them who you are and what you do. I'm a 20-year-old violinist. I'm in my fourth year studying violin performance at the University of Manitoba, and I'm just very passionate about performing violin. Great. Uh, that makes sense. Um, if you're doing your performance degree, I yeah. guess. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> How did this all start? Like, I know with violin, you have to start at a very young age to eventually be good enough. That's what I'm always told anyways. Tell me about your whole, your, tell me about your life. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I did start pretty young. My parents, like my mom's a piano teacher and she's very keen on exposing her kids at a young age to classical music. Mm -hmm. So she took me to concerts once I turned three, just so that I could start seeing the symphony, seeing different recitals around the city, growing up in Thunder Bay, not in Winnipeg. Okay. And so when I was three and a half or so, I had been to a number of concerts already, but never a violin performance. And they took me to an orchestra concert that featured a violin concerto. Oh. And I heard the violinist and was just absolutely in love with it. When you were three and a half? When I was three and a half. Oh, wow. And so usually I would fidget through concerts and sometimes fall asleep mm -hmm. being three and yeah. concerts start later in the evening. Mm -hmm. But at this concert, stayed away completely. And I don't remember this because I was only three, but apparently in the slow movement of the concerto, we were at the back of the balcony and I stood up and started playing the air violin along with it and not in Aww. a mocking way at all, but just yeah. wanted to be a part of that sound. Mm -hmm. And so finished the performance, got to meet the performer oh, and wow. that was super inspiring for me. So from the age of three or so, I was begging my parents to play violin just because mm -hmm. I loved it. So they did introduce me to a teacher and she was very hardcore Russian and so they don't believe in starting kids super young because they want to wait until they think you've got a better attention span and you've learned to read before okay. they teach you to read music and get started. So she advised my parents to wait till I turned six to start lessons, but she did give them suggestions for some CDs I could listen to and told them to keep taking me to concerts so that I would continue loving it and developing an interest in violin. Mm -hmm. So then I ended up starting formal lessons at the age of six. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. That's... that's that is interesting. My very, my very first piano teacher was also Russian, and I started when I was three. Um, so I found that's really, I guess maybe violin's different. Yeah, maybe just different schools, yeah. too. Yeah, just, uh, schools of thought or whatever. So how how did you get to where you are then? So you started at six, and that's that's only 14 years. I mean, that's 14 years, but you've gotten pretty good <laughs> since then. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, how did that happen? Well... As I said earlier, my mom's a piano teacher, mm -hmm. so she knew a lot about how to help me practice and just making quick progress and being diligent when I practice. So I grew up homeschooled and practicing oh, violin a lot. I'm was just <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> and so practicing violin daily was a part of my schedule. And so we would get up and, you know, eat breakfast to get ready for the day and then the first thing I did was practice violin. And you know, for the first several years my mom helped me practice every day. Because as a music teacher, she could do a good job making sure I was staying on track, playing mm -hmm. in tune, getting a good sound, things yeah. like that. So my first several years of progress were quite accelerated just because I pretty much had a personal teacher every single day with my mom. And so by the age of about eight or so, I was already pretty advanced with violin just because I really enjoyed it and was pretty much getting daily lessons and mm -hmm. practiced it a lot. And so, and then the momentum just builds up. Like, you know, you start entering competitions at a young age, and if you do fairly well at them, you want to enter more, and then yeah. you practice harder for the competitions. Yeah. And so it's pretty much been a lifestyle I've always lived with since a very young age is just practicing diligently and 
preparing for competitions, that sort of thing. Okay, sweet. Uh, that makes sense. Um, what is a practice routine like for you? At that age or this age? Um, let's say this age. This, this age. Yeah, it's probably more relevant. Okay. Um, so I get my violin out, tune up, get ready to go. Um, I have to be really careful with my phone because it is so distracting. So I go through ways where I like delete all social media off my phone and put it on the other side of the room and like will only check it once an hour. But I'm not in one of those ways right now. My phone usually sits right beside me and I get a little bit distracted, but that's okay. And so I usually start with some technique. It's really good on violin for us to practice double stop scales. So that's where we practice two scales at the same time. And what that does is it just really makes sure you can play the two notes perfectly in tune with each other. Because oh. that's one of the biggest struggles that we face at this level of playing violin is just being 100% in tune all the time. Because mm -hmm. it's difficult and, you know, the recording industry has set a standard where they can use auto-tune to correct out-of-tune notes. And so... It's expected in it's expected Exactly. That will meet that standard, which is difficult to meet. So I usually put a lot of time into those scales, just making sure that I can play precisely in tune. Mm -hmm. And then that crosses over into my other playing as well. Okay. And so then from there, a lot of my practicing has to do with what sort of engagements I have coming up. So this fall, for example, I soloed with the Thunder Bass Symphony Orchestra. And so I was practicing concerto for that a lot, just to make sure I was ready for it and that things were good to go. And... But like now that's over and the next thing I'm looking forward to is grad school auditions. And so they've got very specific lists of pieces that they expect us to bring when we audition for my master's degree. And so I'm practicing that very specific list a lot right now. Mm -hmm. So usually I just try to identify which piece is the weakest at any given moment and then work on that piece first. Just because if something unexpected comes up and I have to stop practicing or if I get tired, at least I've worked on the thing that needs the most attention. That makes sense. I mean usually when people are practicing they want to practice what they feel comfortable with and I hear from everyone like you should practice what you need to work on the most first it's a time more effective maybe that you're just a good example of someone that actually does that and shows that it's effective yeah. <laughs> credit um, to my mom for yeah, <laughs> forcing that into no me because it's definitely not easy like you want to practice what you know sounds good it gives you confidence mm -hmm. it makes you feel good yeah but you know it's like eating your vegetables sometimes it's not your favorite thing to do but you're better in the end because of it right Ex exactly yeah Awesome. Um, so how do you balance all of this uh, concert or competition and like master repertoire with the music that you're doing now? For, or do you balance it? Wait, wait, let me word that in a way that makes more sense. You're doing all of this rep for your co uh, competitions and your eventual master's audition, if you're already doing that right now. Um, how do you balance all of that with your current rep for school? What do you have to do for your exams? Yeah. I try to do a lot of overlap wherever possible okay. and so when for example I was telling you about Thunder Bay Symphony how I recently soloed with them and when they contacted me back in the spring and asked me what sort of concerto I would want to do with them and they pretty much gave me free choice like I could do oh, whatever wow. concerto I wanted as long as it fit their budget for buying the parts mm -hmm. and so what I did was at that point already I went and looked at the websites for the schools I want to audition for and looked at what sort of pieces they require and then picked a piece that fit that requirement because then I wouldn't be working on a piece for Thunder Bay Symphony performing in November and then never using it again. And yeah. all that work, you know, was for one gig but didn't line up with any other ones. Mm -hmm. So I purposely picked one that I would need again in February when I go audition for my master's. Yeah. And that way it's a more manageable amount of music to learn instead of learning lots of huge pieces all the time. 
Mm. So how how are you constantly planning ahead like that? Did you did you just learn that over time, or is it just? It's definitely through mistakes. Mistakes, okay. Yeah. Um, in my first year of school, especially my second year, I would pick for a performance. I would just pick a piece I thought was super cool and was super excited for, and I'd practice super hard, perform it once, and then realize I've got three weeks to learn a completely different piece for a different performance because. In my head, I just wanted to learn a bunch of really fun music, and so I'd pick a different piece for every engagement. And so it took a number of subpar performances and some stressful weeks practicing a lot, trying to learn something quickly, to realize that I've got my whole life ahead of me, and I don't have to pick a completely different piece for every performance. Mm-hmm. And it's better to have a little bit of overlap when you're preparing for lots of different things, just so that it's manageable. Yeah. No, yeah. that's, that's totally fair. Um, really quickly, I just want to ask about social media because you said that you get rid of it. How do you, because you're, you're 20, you're young, you're in like this, in this generation that's obsessed with social media. Do, how, how does that affect your, your social life? My social media? Yeah, by not having social media accounts. Well, because I still, I keep it on my computer. I just don't keep it logged in on my phone. Okay. But I do keep it very minimal. I only have Facebook. Like, I don't have Twitter or Mm -hmm. Instagram, any of those accounts. And so I found it really beneficial because Facebook is great. You stay in touch with people. You still see people's pictures. You see what they're up to. Mm -hmm. Um, Back when I did have Instagram a couple years ago, I just found it was very time-consuming. And it was a lot of fun. Like, my page ended up going viral, and I ended up with several thousand followers on it. But... What it ended up happening was that people had expectations that I would post daily and lots of people would send me messages, you know, sometimes with videos asking me to give them online lessons and talk about their performance or ask me to give them shout outs on my page. And so that was several times a day I would get those sort of messages. So it just became difficult to manage that many people all yeah. at the same time. And like your schoolwork. And, and my school and performances. Okay. And so it makes me realize I always wondered why lots of famous musicians have people who run their social media for them Mm -hmm. and it kind of made that apparent just that it can be difficult to manage that much all at the same time so I did end up removing my Instagram just because it became distracting and it was something I was spending a lot of time on and that time could go to other places yeah do you think once you're done school you'll you'll bring it back I definitely have considered bringing it back yeah Mm -hmm. just as a a way to connect with your audience exactly that's that's a requirement now like I'll modern musicians or people who play modern genres they they rely on their social media and do you think that's that's the same for um for sure yeah and you can definitely see the organizations that put a lot of effort into their social media receive a lot greater audience attendance at their Mm -hmm. performances just because they are reaching out to that young generation and i think a lot of classical musicians have missed the importance of that and so i definitely know once i'm done school and i've like found a stable job I will probably put up a Facebook page for myself mm-hmm. and I do have a public YouTube page as well just so people you know find me on the internet see videos of my performances so or if yeah that works yeah so just while I'm in school it's a little bit too much to manage but I definitely plan on increasing social mm-hmm. media appearance once I'm out of school fair enough awesome that, that makes sense and I think some people just really need to hear that you don't have to do all of it at once um, priorities right yeah and it'll be good to get social media going once I'm really happy with the level I play it to once I feel I've reached a really professional level and I'm, you know, very confident with everything I'm putting on the internet, then it'll be good to get social media going at that point. Mm -hmm. That's good. Be proud of your content. Um, So you've been saying you're getting ready for for grad school and to do your master's. Um, What is that process like or why did you decide to do your master's? 
well, in performance? The, the main reason I decide master's in performance is just because the longer I can stay in school, the longer I'm still getting lessons, and so the more potential I have to improve. Because at this point in my education, I've been playing for 14 years, so I've learned a lot on how to learn music by myself, how to critique myself, you know, different tips. You can record yourself and listen back and essentially give yourself a lesson, right? Mm -hmm. But there's still so much knowledge out there and so many incredible violinists and teachers I'd love to learn from. So that was the main reason for deciding to pursue a master's in performance was so that I could meet a new teacher, get new insight, new advice from them. Mm -hmm. So the process is actually quite lengthy and it's been something I've been looking into for several years now because if you're going to spend two years of your life learning one-on-one with a teacher, you want to make sure you've got a personal connection with them as well as know their credentials and their alumni that they've produced, that their alumni are successful Mm -hmm. and that they are turning out really good students that are making a difference in the world. So started with researching teachers probably in my second year of my bachelor's degree. So you knew knew like right away you were going to do your master's? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I've been researching teachers probably for about two or three years now. Just started with just looking at different competitions around the world and you know, what students were winning them and then what schools they were coming from, like what schools were putting out the best musicians at this point in the world. So, and then I knew Europe's expensive, so I knew European schools were probably out of the picture, but it started looking a lot like American schools where where most of the successful violinists were coming from. And so at that point, once I knew what schools were producing really good violinists, I started looking at individual teachers, just reading their biographies and you know, if they've if a teacher's got an alumni of 20 world-famous violinists, they're probably doing something right, you know. Yeah. So at that point, just condensing it down to a list of individual people that I'd like to meet. And so I finished that process probably back in the spring. I knew a list of five or six teachers that I'd really like to meet as early as possible and, you know, establish that personal connection with them so that not only would I be interested in working with them, but they would be interested in working with me yeah. as well. So a major point in my preparation was this summer when I went to the Aspen Music Festival in school in Colorado. And there was a very large number of world-renowned violin teachers there. And so the festival is very big. It's about 600 students, so bigger than our School of Music here at Mm -hmm. U of M. Just a little bigger. A little bigger, (laughs) like twice the size. (laughs) Yeah, and so it was incredible working in an environment. There were 150 violinists that were accepted into this festival on top of other instruments as well. And so... And because there were 150 violinists, I think there were 15 to 20 or so teachers, and all of them from the most famous music schools that are out there. So, you know, Colburn School of Music, Curtis, Juilliard, New England Conservatory, just lots of really big names were represented at this festival. And I had the chance to study with a number of these teachers. And so I primarily studied with Paul Cantor. He teaches at the Shepherd School of Music in Houston. Mm -hmm. And him and I clicked super well. Um, just his learning style, it's very different from what I'm used to because I've been brought up in the Russian school, which, you know, they're working on your technique and perfect posture and producing a big juicy sound. And his school of music was a lot more personal. It was a lot more about how do I see the music and what am I trying to communicate with my audience? It was taking it beyond that technical level to the level of, you know, expressing yourself and having something to say with your music which is really good because I feel like I've got the technical foundation at this age and that's the next step in developing, you know, my musicality. And so once I realized that I really liked him and he knew I was looking for a grad school teacher, we just sat down one day and had a conversation about it. 
and he told me that he would really enjoy it if I auditioned for his school. Of course, there's no guarantees because there's many other great violinists out there too. Yeah. But he said that he really would look forward to me applying for his school and that he would seriously consider taking me on as one of his students. Nice. So once I knew that, then I kind of made that school my main focus. So back around June, July or so, I went through and looked at that school, all the requirements to audition at it and started learning all those pieces as soon as possible. And then other teachers, you know, who I also liked, maybe not to the same level, but also thought it would be great to work with them as well. I looked at their schools and have been learning their requirements as well. Mm -hmm. Have they overlapped? Yes, there is a fair amount of overlap. (laughs) It would be a little stressful Mm -hmm. if there wasn't. But each school kind of has their own catch piece that's different from other schools. So I do have four pieces that I'm only going to use at one of the auditions, like one, you know, for each one. Yeah. But out of the four schools I'm applying for, there is a lot of overlap mm-hmm. between. What, can I ask what schools you're applying for? Yes. Yeah. I'm applying for Shepherd School of Music in mm-hmm. Houston. Yeah. That's probably my top pick right now. Okay. And I'm applying for New England Conservatory. They've got an incredible list of teachers right now, and there's several there that I would enjoy studying with. Mm-hmm. And I'm applying for the Yale School of Music which would be great to get into. It's completely free for graduate students. And they've got a really good orchestra situation there. They've got a very good orchestra, but it's also located about two hours outside of New York City. And so it's a very heavily populated area, but it's not actually in New York itself. So there's a lot of performance opportunities, but you're not competing with the professionals who live in New York because they're making all their money. They want to stay in the city. Yeah. And so you can join a ton of community orchestras, get paid to play in them all the way through school. I know a number of people who have made a very good living while in school at Yale simply because they're playing all these community events. Mm-hmm. And actually, the University of Manitoba Symphony Orchestra's conductor, Julian Pelicano, he studied conducting at Yale. So okay. that's been helpful too, just talking to him about, you know, just bring any questions to him and he can tell me about the dynamics. That's how I learned about this orchestra situation there. Mm-hmm. And then the last school I'm applying for is the Curtis Institute of Music. And that's kind of my YOLO school. It's got a super low acceptance rate and it's the most difficult music school to get into by far. Just incredibly high standards and a lot of the kids you're competing with there like that's kind of the prodigy school so you're applying against a bunch of 15 16 year olds that are already touring the world but figured you know you only live once so why not try applying for a really difficult school and if it works out it works out then yeah but if not it's still the experience if you got accepted into your, your your number one choice and this super hard school which one would you pick that's been a super difficult choice actually that mm-hmm. I've been thinking about trying to avoid thinking about it I'll just cross that bridge when I come to it especially just because my girlfriend and I are both applying to similar schools but she isn't applying for the Curtis Institute of Music so never mind we're just not talking about it <laughs> yeah, what would happen like, if I got in <laughs> we're just not gonna talk about it <laughs> we'll talk about it if I get in yeah but their okay. acceptance rate is below one percent so you know it's not like it's the most pressing thing yeah to discuss right now that is very very stressful to think about I don't know if I could do that honestly I wouldn't be able to handle that um so going way back, about 20 minutes into the interview, uh, we uh, did start with a piece that you have. It's actually you performing it. It's the uh, Violin Sonata in A Major, K fifty or 526 by Beethoven? Mozart. Mozart. Are we starting with that one? Yeah. Yeah, okay, sorry. I'm just not paying <laughs> attention. Um, by Mozart, just kidding. Um, why did you decide that we should play that piece first? Or why did you decide to pick it to learn it? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, that piece ended up, I was talking about overlap earlier. It overlapped quite well with some of the things that I need to be working on right now. So um, the New England Conservatory, it's one of the schools I'm applying for, they require a full classical sonata as one of their pieces, and that's kind of their catch piece. No other school asks for a full classical sonata. And so I figured that this Mozart sonata would be a good pick because it's not super difficult, and since I'm only using it for one school, it would be good you know, not to learn something incredibly difficult since mm-hmm. I'm only going to use it once. And so I picked one that, you know, it's upbeat, it's good, but it's not, it wouldn't be something that would consume a huge amount of my time to learn. And I just really enjoy the work as well. And mm-hmm. so I was learning it for that. And then a violin competition back home in Ontario came up and they asked for a Mozart sonata. So it just worked out really well that this sonata would be a good recording project because I could use it for that competition when I send in, you know, pre-screening audition DVDs as well as the New England Conservatory when mm-hmm. I send them pre-screening DVDs as well. No, absolutely. You're very clever with um, planning all of these things out. That's good. I wish I was more organized like that. <laughs> uh, but we are going to now take a break uh, and listen to a uh, Sonata Number no. 2 in A minor by J.S. Bach. Yes. It's a nice short little solo um, piece, right? And why, why did you want us to play this one today? Well, Bach is just an incredible composer. Um, eh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> debatable. <laughs> um, so he was really, he laid down kind of the rules for a lot of violin standards. Mm-hmm. And he was the first composer to bring about the idea of unaccompanied violin, where, you know, you could have two, three, four simultaneous notes at the same time, much like piano. And that violin didn't need a piano accompanying it, but that you could write solo music for it. And so the music he wrote was much more difficult than anything written at his time, but also just had much more potential because of the variety that he gave us through these works. And so because of just how significant these works are, they are asked for by every single music school I'm auditioning for. Just every school wants to know you've got a firm grasp on that style. Mm-hmm. And, and that you so, can play solo. Exactly. Yeah. Because, you know, you're so exposed if you don't have someone playing piano along with you, it can be difficult to maintain your confidence and you know, the slightest mistake is made quite more obvious. So it's really good for them to hear that you're confident with difficult solo music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Awesome. Okay, so let, let's take our break, and we're going to listen to you playing uh, Sonata Number no. 2 in E minor, uh, I guess 1003, the first movement, is that what that is? Yeah, first Grav, um, by J.S. Bach. Thank you. 
everyone, and welcome back to the Winnipeg Music Project on 101.5 UMFM. This is Ashley Bianyaj. I am still here with Gregory Lewis. Hey, Greg. Hey, Ashley. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for like sticking around. Uh, we just heard uh, your performance um, for the Sonata Number no. Two in E Minor by Bach. I say it with the phlegm. Is that right? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Bach. <laughs> Bach. Um, you are planning on doing this tour this summer. Uh, in, all over BC. Yes. Right. Uh, why? What is this tour? Well, this tour, it kind of got thrown together out of nowhere with a good friend of mine. He's a very successful pianist, and he's placed in a number of Canada's largest piano competitions. He's won awards at them. So, very accomplished pianist. He studies in BC, but I met him at a summer music festival a couple of years ago, and we've stayed in good touch since then. So, he texted me just out of the blue about a month ago and was like, Greg, how would you want to come to BC? We can hang out this summer and we can do a tour. And I was like, that would be awesome. Like I've been to BC twice, but both times was just like from Vancouver driving through to Calgary. And so I saw like the same strip twice, but never like spent a lot of time in Vancouver or a lot of time on Vancouver Island. So there's a lot of that province that I haven't gone to see. So I thought that would be a super fun idea. And so I was like, yeah, that'd be great. And he texted me an hour later and he's like, Okay, I've confirmed performances in Nanaimo, Victoria, Vancouver, Maple Ridge, and had like a list of six cities that oh, wow. we were going to perform in. So I was like, wow, you're like really on top of this. That's awesome. And so, yeah, so it came together really quickly. So we just finished picking some of the music we would perform for it. And are you overlapping that with some of your. <laughs> yes, I will be overlapping <laughs> it. I was wondering. <laughs> yeah, that Mozart sonata you heard yeah. will be part of it. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so. So, yeah, we're really looking forward to that. It'll be great because I told him, he asked if I had any terms and conditions kind of deal, and I told him I needed one day to do hiking in the Rocky Mountains and one day to do hiking on Vancouver Island because I love hiking and just, you know, getting to see the area that I'm in. I didn't want it to be like pastimes that have gone on tour in BC where you just fly into Vancouver, perform, and then fly out yeah. two days later. I wanted some time to actually be able to, you know, put on my hiking shoes and get out and see what BC looks like outside mm-hmm. of the city. So you can so, say you've actually been to BC, not just I've performed in BC. I've been there. And exactly. I've that I've it. lived there, right? Yeah. yeah. So been a tourist. So yeah. that'll be a lot of fun. And he's also big into hiking and spending time in the outdoors as well. Okay. So, so bonding. Yeah, exactly. It'll be good because, <laughs> you know, we perform together, but we're also good friends. Mm-hmm. So it'll be a really fun time. What's it like to tour as a classical musician? It's actually not that different from touring as a non-classical musician. You think so? We still do a lot of the same things that people do. Like I've toured with the National Youth Orchestra before in 2014 and 2015. And I mean, you get together, I feel like it might be a bit more strict in terms of rehearsing. Like we have a conductor who is 100% in charge. There's not as much of the community, let's say, where everyone gives feedback and everyone has opinions and we try to weigh them out just because an orchestra is a hundred people and you know you wouldn't get a lot of work done that way yeah and so you have one conductor who's in authority over everyone and so you do all your rehearsing but then once you set on the road it's the exact same like you know you get in your tour bus everyone's really hyped you show up at the city nobody hardly practices because they're just running loose and super excited and having fun and then everyone gets together gives this huge orchestra concert in a concert hall And then, I mean, we do the same stuff that non-classical musicians would do. You know, you have after parties, usually a bar gets booked and everyone goes out after and hangs out and you go back to the hotel and everyone stays up till three, four in the morning, just having a really good time. 
get up super early next morning back on the bus and you're on to your next city yeah so it's a lot of a similar lifestyle in that regard mm-hmm. it's just the music that we're performing is different that's really i think that's really important to hear i, I just because you're you're still people you're not like these like posh like uptight people you're still like yeah. most of you might be, even be children um or young adults and you're still like one experience yeah exactly because national youth orchestra the age range is 16 through I think 26 or 28. Mm-hmm. So the majority of us were doing our bachelor's degree, some master's students, but there was also high school students there mm-hmm. too. And my first year when I went, I was only 17. So there's definitely, you know, kids there that are doing this as well and you want to have fun, right? Yeah. And a lot of them, you know, it might be their first time being away from home for three months at a time. So yeah. they're going to go out and have fun in the world and experience it as well. That's crazy. I don't think I've ever been away from home for three months. That's crazy to think about. Um, and how, how did you handle it? How do, you, say, how do you handle touring? I'd say I handle it pretty well. Um, you definitely have to take care of yourself and make a very conscious effort. It's easy when you're traveling lots. You can get dehydrated easily. You eat fast food a lot because it's cheapest and most convenient. But me and a couple of close friends when we were on tour, we made a habit of just going to a grocery store when we got to a city. And the food we bought didn't have great variation, but we were just making sure we'd buy the same fruits and vegetables to eat each day and you know buy some bread to make sandwiches instead of eating fast food every day you know Mm -hmm. so we would allow ourselves to eat out once a day for dinner in a different city just to try different foods in different restaurants but we tried really hard to eat you know natural foods and healthy foods and that was important too Mm -hmm. especially if you're you know running on less sleep and you know high stress high stress always on the road right it's good to take care of yourself as much as you can Mm -hmm. so I'd say that aspect I could still, you know, you're always improving, but I'd say I've got a pretty good hold on that part of it. And then sleep is a big thing too. You've got to let yourself get some sleep, whether Mm -hmm. it's on the tour bus or actually sleeping at the hotel instead of staying up all night. That's an important aspect as well, because you're not going to perform as well if you've got three hours of sleep the night for, as opposed to getting eight, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, segue, um, with performing, um, how how do you deal with, or do you get nerves when you're performing or before a performance? I used to get them pretty severely before performances. Um, it took kind of figuring out myself and just what triggered the nerves and what things helped with nerves and just really studying them closely. Because a lot of people, it's a taboo topic. They think like, I don't want to think about getting nervous. I don't want to talk about it. I'm just going to pretend I'm not nervous. And they never really address the issue of nerves by doing that. And so... Nerves are just a constant thing that they deal with when it comes to performing. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, as I said earlier, my mom was a piano teacher. So right from there, I had a lot of good tips from her. So I realized, she realized and helped me realize that a lot of my nerves came from not eating because I didn't want to get a queasy feeling in my stomach. And so I would avoid eating. But what that actually ended up doing was, you know, lowering my blood sugar. And then I would feel a bit more shaky and not as confident, not as strong, tired, you know, some of those sort of additional symptoms would start setting in. Mm -hmm. And so that's an important thing I do to avoid nerves is actually trying to eat large meals the day of a performance and eating as close up to the performance as possible. Okay. And another thing too is that like a lot of people don't know this, but nerves are actually triggered by the same part of your brain as excitement. And so a lot of it's just a misunderstanding in our head of what's about to happen because we are excited to perform we're passionate about it. it's what we love doing but we interpret it as nerves because you get so caught up in having to perform 
perfectly and not wanting to make mistakes. And so if you can, in your head, stay focused on what you're excited about and, you know, you're passionate about and what you want to share with people, that helps to settle the nerves. And then another thing I do is, like, I just get a ton of energy. And if I don't get rid of it, then, you know, you get shaky and you get kind of jittery. So I try to just find, like, a flight of stairs backstage somewhere and run up and down the stairs a couple times, 10 minutes before I go on. So you get that energy out you know you let your heart rate accelerate when you're running and then calm back down as you relax again and then you're calm when you go on stage okay that's very interesting i've never heard these tactics before i've also heard bananas are really good the potassium i've heard that too i want to try that because i know know a lot of people that have had good success eating a banana like half an hour before they perform yeah apparently it just calms you down which is really interesting my um ensemble uh, coach told me that one um so there you go (laughs) you already knew that but people who are listening didn't know that you're welcome uh, how do you deal with see one of the biggest things that i dislike about performing classical music is i guess it's, i guess it's kind of judgment because there are very, people who are very passionate about classical music and there's a certain ways that you have to play music for it to be correct um and how do you do you ever fear like oh i'm gonna i might play this and people might think i'm playing it wrong or what if I play wrong? No, everyone's going to know. Like, do you have to deal with that at all? For sure. Yeah. That's actually at the forefront a lot of the time when I'm playing. And so how do you get over that? I honestly, I try to ignore it is the best thing mm-hmm. I can do because if I'm performing for an audience, just by nature of the field, some people in the audience will appreciate how I interpret it. Some people won't, some will hate it and some will think it's the most exciting interpretation they've heard in years, you know? And you're going to have that whole mix of people in the audience no matter where you perform in the world. And so I just try personally to be very convincing and hope that I'm expressing something that even if they don't agree with my interpretation, they can at least appreciate, you know, what I expressed and what I was trying to share with the audience when I was on stage. And so that's helped me get over it a little bit just because, you know, they can appreciate my preparation and appreciate my effort, even if it's not exactly how they would choose to perform it, they can see the integrity in the performance. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting um, to hear that. One of the reasons why I don't like performing classical music is because of that. And I think I already said that, but, um, and I I find it very easy to perform my own personal compositions or some people find that to be the exact opposite. But it's interesting that you said that like staying true to yourself and being honest with like your feelings about the piece um, when you're writing your own music, uh, a very common feedback or advice people give you is being true to yourself and being honest to what your feelings are and what you're singing about. And it's re- interesting how like that you, what can apply to modern music also applies to classical music. Some people feel like they're very different genres, and they kind they're not really. There's still music, but they have different expectations. But they're they're what you've been telling me could easily. Uh, apply to a rock musician or a pop musician or a singer songwriter um so it's really interesting to hear you say that um so you have an upcoming performance it's december 29th yes that'll be my next solo performance in winnipeg Mm -hmm. um so yeah that's through the women's musical club of winnipeg and every spring they hold a scholarship competition and so in this competition anyone from the age of 18 through 30 in the city can enter this competition they all go in an audition for half an hour each and they have a panel and the panel has five scholarships that they're going to award to the top five players who they hear perform how many people usually enter each year 
Um, if you know. It kind of swings. This past year, I think there were 18 of us who auditioned for just because it is a difficult process. Some people don't have enough music prepared to enter it. Yeah. So I think this year there were 18, but I did it last year as well, and there was, I think, closer to 25 or 30 people who entered it then. So mm-hmm. it just depends on the yeah. year. And so what they do is they award these five scholarships, and then the five people who receive them all put together performance together, and they perform usually during Christmas break each year. So that's why it's on the 29th of December this year. And they all perform together in the Women's Musical Club to showcases their winners that they've selected. Mm-hmm. That's super exciting. Do you... I'm assuming you already know your music. I mean, today would be a bad time to not have music prepared. Um, Can you tell us what you're playing or is it a surprise? Oh, I can tell you. That's fine. Um, I'll be performing three pieces. And we were talking earlier about how unaccompanied music is difficult just because it's exposed. And a lot of the universities I'm applying for require large amounts of unaccompanied music. So I decided for this performance... You know, I would expose myself and perform all unaccompanied music. Oh, okay. And that'll help me get in the practice, build some confidence performing, you know, some exposing pieces of music. Because mm-hmm. it's in a performance setting. It's just not a competition. So exactly. there's not that stress. Oh, that's clever. Yeah. yeah. So, it, you know, it's just a confidence booster. There's not a ton on the line if it doesn't go great, but it gives mm-hmm. me the experience to perform it. Absolutely. So I'll be performing the Bach that we heard at the break earlier in the mm-hmm. middle. So Bach Sonata number two, the first movement. And then I'll contrast that with Paganini Caprice number 17, which is a very virtuosic, fast, flashy showpiece for violin. Paganini was known for just writing the hardest stuff for violin. And then the final piece I'll be performing is a modern work written in the middle of the 20th century by composer Bartok. And it's also unaccompanied. And that piece, it's a good contrast to the other two just because it's a lot darker in terms of just the background of the work. It was written by Bartok in 1945 at the end of World War II and he wrote it when he had just recently immigrated to North America and was planning on bringing the rest of his family but when he was going through health screenings after arriving here he got diagnosed with cancer and ended up passing away despite having just lived through the horror of the war and just thinking he was bringing his family over to a better life he ended up passing away within just a short number of months. And so this work he wrote when he was in the hospital right at the end of his life. Oh you made me cry this is so <laughs> sad oh my goodness. Okay, that's gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna start crying. I'm not gonna. It's so Sorry, sad. Don't want to do no, that no, too no, on no. air. No, no, no. That's like so heavy. I, I almost don't even want to go listen to the piece like right now. Like, I, I won't. I'm gonna be in Hawaii on this way night, so unfortunately, I won't be able to make it. But I think people should really definitely go hear that and like just knowing that story. I think will really add a lot of, of the heaviness that you yeah. might experience when you hear you play it. So I yeah. definitely recommend everyone. Uh, to go to the show. It's gonna be at the art gallery on December 29th. All of the uh, women's Women's Musical Club. Music Club uh, scholarship winners will be performing. It'll be a wonderful treat. Um, we're go- we have to end the show. We're running out of time. We're actually, I think we're going over. Um, so this has been so much fun talking to you. And I really enjoyed hearing your past, <laughs> everything about yeah. you, uh, and how you kind of got here and what kind of got you to be so motivated. Um, we are going to finish the show with a piece called Concerto Number no. 5 in A Major by Mozart. It's the first movement. Why did you want to finish with this piece? Um, well, this is just a piece. This is what I performed at the Thunder Bay Symphony Orchestra mm-hmm. back in November. And it's just a super lively, upbeat, very easy to listen to piece of music. It's kind of the most stereotypical, if you think of classical music, like it's just, you know, nice, easy listening, quick, enjoyable for everyone. So I thought it'd be a great work to share. Great. Awesome. Is there anything you'd like to add before we go? 
I, I think that's everything I've got. Oh, perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Yeah. Um, you can definitely come back if you have something else you'd like to promote. I'd totally love to talk to you some more. Uh, this has been the Winnipeg Music Project on 101.5 uh, UMFM. My name is Ashley Bianj. This is Gregory Lewis. So now you're listening to Mozart's uh, Violin Concerto, number five in A major, the first movement. <laughs>